This afternoon, again, we turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis in chapter 2. We have expounded in previous sermons the words I'm just going to read. I'm not going to reiterate all those points that we have made along the way, but I want to refresh your memory by reading these verses again and again as we come back to this passage. We begin with verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Once again, let's pray for the blessing of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you for the inspired word of God. We can come back to it year after year, month after month, day after day, and again and again we find things we had not discovered before. It is a deep, rich mine, full of truth, full of treasure for us to discover. We pray that tonight, this afternoon, that you would help us to discover the riches of your word, and that it would not be a mere curiosity to us, but rather that it would come as with its convicting power, transforming us and making us into the kinds of husbands and wives that we ought to be. Bless us, we pray, to this end, therefore, with the presence and the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, having observed that it was not good for the man to be alone, God said, I will make a helper comparable to him, in verse 18. And as his matching opposite, Eve would supply what was lacking in Adam. And the man would be complete, and that completion would be only when he is joined to his wife. And when this happens, they become one flesh. And the picture of marriage that's given here is that of two people that are similar yet different, different in such a way that they complement and complete each other. And the differences between a man and a woman, they represent different needs that each of them have. And these needs can be met and only met by the partner that they have been joined to in marriage. And for there to be a happy marriage, there needs to be the meeting of these various needs. And one of the secrets to a successful marriage, therefore, is understanding these differences and responding to these needs represented by these differences. And, of course, one of the secrets to destroying a marriage is to be totally selfish and only thinking about your own needs and not your your spouse. Marriage requires love, self-sacrificing love on the part of both partners. Well, in addition to the particular differences between the man and his wife, there are differences between men and women in general. And these differences have been illustrated by a comparison between a buff butterfly and a water buffalo. A water buffalo is one of the most common buffaloes on the earth, found more often in Africa and in India. They were often used to plow fields. Well, the butterfly is keenly sensitive. It is sensitive even to the slightest breeze. As it flutters around, it notices the beauty of even the tiniest flower. And because of its sensitivity, it constantly is aware of the changes that are around it, and it reacts to the slightest variation in its environment. If a tiny pebble were taped carefully, no matter how carefully we would try to do to tape it to its wing, the process would damage its wing 
And with that little pebble weighted down, it would not be able to fly, and soon it would die. The water buffalo is another story. It is protected by a thick hide. It doesn't react to a breeze. It's not even affected by a 30-mile-an-hour wind. It's not aware of the least of tiny flowers in the path in its way as it goes stomping through a field. It just stomps on them. And take, take a pebble, and you try to tape it to its back, and, and he, in a moment, won't even be aware that it's there at all. And this is the way that God made the buffalo. It isn't evil just because it goes around stomping on flowers. That's just the way God made buffaloes. And in fact, its toughness is a tremendous asset. And with its brute strength, the water buffalo can pull a plow through the ground that four grown men cannot pull. Well, the analogy is very obvious. In your marriages, ladies, you are the butterfly, your husband is the buffalo. And he tends to plow through circumstances while you feel life and all of its circumstances. And you are like that butterfly that's sensitive and, and reacts to things that he doesn't react to. The pebble taped to the butterfly's wing, so to speak, it could take the form of an insensitive remark or somebody that ignored you at church. But whatever it is, the same thing, your husband hardly notices at all. You remember, he's a buffalo. But God's grace, however, this analogy can break down. It can be corrected. By God's grace, your husband can learn how to be gentle and how to be sensitive. In part, he can learn this through your gracious response to his insensitivity. And by God's grace, he can learn how to meet, and you can learn how to meet his needs. And this dynamic, it depends, of course, on recognizing each other's differences. And here we're looking somewhat at natural revelation as well as biblical revelation. We see things and we observe these things, these differences between the way God made men and women. According to Dr. Paul Popino, the founder of American Institute of Family Relations, a book could be filled with the biological differences between the sexes, even if we exclude those differences that pertain to reproduction. Here's just a few of them. Men and women, they differ in every cell of their bodies. This difference in their chromosome combinations is the basic cause of all the differences in their development as male and female as they grow up. Women have a greater constitutional vitality. In other words, they live longer, ordinarily somewhere between four to eight years. The metabolism of women is lower than that of men. They, th they feel like this is kind of a bad part of the bargain. It's harder for them to, to stay slim and trim and and they, they, we go on a diet together, and they get mad because the husbands lose quicker. And anyway, there's a difference in their metabolism. Their skeletal structure differs. Women typically have a shorter head, a broader face, a less protruding chin, shorter legs, and a longer trunk. And then there's internal differences. Women have a larger stomach, kidneys, and liver, but smaller lungs. Women also have various bodily functions that are lacking in men, menstruation, pregnancy, lactation. And then there are hormonal differences, all of which affect their feelings and their behavior. The thyroid gland of women is larger and more active. It produces smoother skin, a relatively hairless body, a thin layer of subcutaneous fat. Even the blood of women, it differs. The blood of women, did you know this, it contains 20% fewer red cells. And since the red cell supplies oxygen to the body, women tire more easily. The hearts of women beat more rapidly, 80 beats a minute versus 72. Their blood pressure is typically 10 points lower than men, so there's always a benefit. They've got the lower blood pressure. We've got the high blood pressure that kill us. And there are also muscular differences. In brute strength, men are 50% above women or ordinarily. Well, we could go on and on and list many other physical differences that this doctor has specified. But what we have listed is enough to demonstrate the absolute folly of this transgender movement. They try to change a little thing with a little surgery here or there or a little hormone pill. How in the world are they going to change the whole cellular structure of that person? They can't. They can't change a man into a woman or a woman into a man. It just isn't done. Well, that's, I had to get that off my chest. But... It, it's the mental and the emotional differences that affect marriage the most. And I've just spoken about some of the physical differences. 
women, they tend to be more personal than men. They have a deeper interest in people and feelings, while men tend to be more preoccupied with practical matters that can be analyzed through logical deduction. And of course, this doesn't mean that women are totally illogical. I'm not trying to say that, but that's just the way that men think. Men, women tend to be an intimate part, you see, of the people that they know and the surroundings that they are in. And this is why a woman tends to view her house as an extension of herself. And so if something's criticized about the house, she feels like it's a criticism of her. But to the contrary, men, they don't allow these things to, as it were, be intertwined together. And because of a woman's emotional identification with people and, the, and her emotional identification with the things that are around her, she needs more time to adjust, to change, than a man does. A man can logically deduce the long-term benefits of a change, and he can get psyched up for it in a few minutes, make a decision, there it is. But a woman, she focuses on the immediate consequences. She thinks about all the things that could have to change and the initial adjustments that are required. And before She has to go through that whole process before she can be warmed up to a major change. Gary Smalley relates a case that I can assume came into his counseling work. Uh, Steve and Bonnie, he relates, and probably these are fake names, they had been struggling to make enough money to pay the bills. His small business was requiring 18 hours a day in his part, and she was putting in at least eight hours a day, now seven months pregnant. And of course, I'm not relating this to recommend that a woman be out there putting eight hours a day, but this is what was happening in their marriage. Well, Steve flew east to show his business ideas to a multimillionaire, and the man was impressed, that, uh, and he made an offer, a generous offer, to, to Steve. And Steve could hardly wait to call his, to his wife and tell her the great news. Well, it took Steve less than five minutes to accept the offer. It was the only reasonable course of action, you see. It was the logical choice to make. So he calls Bonnie up and he tells her the news in logical order. That she, he, he thinks, well, surely she's going to get excited just like I am. He told her first, you won't have to work anymore. Second, he's given me 20% of the profits. He says, I'll be a millionaire in a year. And third, you won't believe how beautiful it is back here. He's going to pay for all, and also he's going to pay for all the music and moving expenses. But Steve was shocked when Bonnie began to weep uncontrollably. At first he thought, she's crying for joy. And yet it's kind of hard to believe that that would be his thought, but remember, men are buffaloes. And as soon as Bonnie catches a breath in between her sobs and she has a few chances to ask some questions, Steve then considered the whole thing just absolutely ridiculous. She says, well, what about our parents? Or what about our apartment? I just finished the room for the baby. And then with the third question, Steve, with all of his masculine, masculine sensitivity, abruptly terminated the phone call, and she had the nerve in his third question to ask if he had forgotten that she was seven months pregnant. Well, after giving her an hour or two to pull herself together, he called her back. She had gained her composure. She agreed to move east and leave her parents, her friends, her doctor, her childbirth classes, the nursery. She spent months preparing for the first child. And it took Bonnie almost eight months to adjust to a change that Steve had adjusted to in five minutes. Steve never made his million. The business failed eight days before their baby was born. They moved again to another place, still 3,000 miles from home. But Steve eventually learned his lesson and thereafter, he didn't make any major changes unless Bonnie was in total agreement. And he tried to give her time in the future to adjust to other changes as they could be foreseen. Well, I just went through that story just to illustrate how this could affect a relationship between a man and a woman in their marriage. Well, this example it brings out the importance, therefore, of husbands dwelling together with their wives according to knowledge, as we have emphasized from 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. And in our last two sermons, we've emphasized how based on her differences, a wife has certain needs, and how her husband in love is to meet those needs. Well, this afternoon, we're going to begin to look at some of the typical needs of a husband and how they can be met. In your bulletins, there, have been, there are four of these needs that are, that are listed, but we're actually going to only have time 
for the first of these four. And the second of them we're only going to just treat in a very surface fashion just because of the nature of this audience. And in the future, in our next sermon, we'll be especially addressing needs number three and four. But there's a special reason why I think we need to spend some time and camp out on the first of these four things, which has to do with domestic support. Now, the necessity of meeting this need is revealed in Genesis 2, the very foundational passage on marriage. The Lord created Adam and gave him a task. That task, verse 15, is that he took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. He gave him that task even before he created his wife. In chapter 1, verse 28, we also are told that the first man was charged with being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it. But for the accomplishment of these tasks, it's obvious that this first man needs a helper. And so in chapter 2 and verse 18, we read that God observes this need. He says, it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And as we read these words, we are not to imagine that God created the first man and then all of a sudden he noticed something he hadn't figured out before. Oh, he needs, she needs a helper. And so I've got to figure out what to do. And now I'm going to do that and I'll create a woman. Obviously, that's not the case. It's written this way for the sake of our human understanding. But now, this is the passage that, first of all, describes the need of this woman helping the man in his task. But now notice with me what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 8. Now, we mustn't imagine that the first woman was created as an afterthought, as I've just said. And in this chapter, we have Paul's inspired commentary on Genesis 2 and verse 18. In verses 8 and 9, we are told that the creation of the man first and the woman second, this was deliberately done by God in order to establish for all time the line of authority in the home. Now, Paul also appeals to this order as he addresses the manner in which, in the first century culture, how women are to manifest their submission to their husbands in public gatherings. In the context, he uses an expression, and it doesn't come out very well in the English translations. It describes the way in which women who had very long hair, they would put it up over their heads. But she, if she let it down, if, if she would look like a loose woman out there in the, in the, in the culture. And uh, we read the word covering, and I think that's not a very literal translation. The idea for her to wear her hair unloosed was to appear like a loose woman. But men, they were not called upon to do this because they didn't wear as long of a hair. And it was assumed that, that therefore, they would not do this because of the authority structure that God had ordained for the church and for the home. And to prove the point that he's making in this context, Paul appeals to the order in which the first man and the first woman were created. In verses 8 and 9, this is what we read. For man is not from the woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. In other words, the creation order tells us that Adam was not created to be the helper of Eve, but rather that Eve was created to be the helper of Adam. And furthermore, the way God, uh, Paul applies this truth, it shows that this relationship of Adam and Eve, this wasn't just unique to them as, the, as a as one couple, it wasn't, well, that's the way they did it back then. God looked at their specific case, and that's the way he figured it out. No, it's not unique. Paul is applying this, you see, to all time. They provide a pattern or a paradigm for all marriages. And the divine pattern established for the home is to be manifested in public gatherings of God's people, this uh, sign of submission in their public gatherings within that culture. Now here... It, would be, it should be noticed that the case, it doesn't rest upon the chronological priority in a specific marriage. It isn't, well, the one that was born that's the oldest is the one you see that should be the one helped, and, and so on. That's not the point that Paul is making. There are many wives that are older than their husbands. But the case rests upon the chronological order of the first creation, of the first man and woman. 
the creation of Adam first, the creation of Eve second. And this order of creation established a distinct vocation for the woman. Genesis 2.18 tells us that God purposed to create Eve in order that she might be a helper comparable to him. And of course, this doesn't mean she's inferior to Adam. The same Hebrew word is used of God even for as our helper. But as we pointed out in an earlier sermon, uh, this still could be used in the sense that she is the helper of her husband in the way which uh, I think God intended it to be and understood. Paul's interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11 stresses that she was created for the man. And according to their divine calling, therefore, wives are called upon to support their husbands in their husband's calling. And that's why we call this point domestic support. Now this obviously collides with the idea that husbands and wives they have an equal right to pursue separate careers that climb up two totally separate professional ladders. Unfortunately, the common assumption in evangelical churches even today is taken not from the biblical order that I've just laid out, the biblical order set forth in creation, but it's taken from 21st century pagan culture. And all too often, that which passes as normal in the homes of evangelical churches in our day, it's fostered, you see, not merely by the feminism of today's culture, but also by abdicating husbands that wimp out from their God-ordained calling. Being the breadwinner of the home is hard, especially now that due to our sin, the ground is cursed, and so brings forth thorns and thistles, and so in the sweat of the brow we now eat our bread. And this is why, under our first heading, we are stressing the husband's need. This is one of his basic needs, is that of domestic support. And so, dear wives, you are called by God to help to support your husbands in their callings. And this is the opposite of the modern idea that women are to go out and engage in their own separate calling. According to Genesis 2.18, you are to be a helper answering to the needs of your husband. And how this is done, it varies according to the position, according to the responsibilities, according to the situation that you find yourselves in. Now I'd like you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 31. We have an example of a specific situation. As we read this passage, notice how the God-fearing wife is a husband-helping, family-oriented woman. The portrait that's painted here is not the portrait of a career woman finding self-fulfillment in a totally independent career. In a few minutes, I'm going to, by the way, and I want you to prepare you. I'm going to give you a little warning here. I want you men, we're going to try to keep you awake this afternoon, and I want to throw out a question here. And the question is I want to ask you, in practical terms, how wives can give us domestic support by what they do in the homes, how they help us as husbands. But as you're thinking about how you might answer that question, let's read together verses 10 and following of Proverbs 31. Who can find a virtuous woman, a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it, and from her profits she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good, and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. And notice these words, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. 
We could go on, but I think you get the basic picture that's here. Well, obviously, the circumstances of this woman are not identical with the circumstances of every man and woman in every culture and every age. In this place, we have a description of a woman whose husband has a prominent place in the city. He is obviously in a governing capacity because we read in verse 23 that he's known in the gates. That's where they did official business. And he sits among the elders of the land. And so that's why he has to be out of the home often to tend to this aspect of his business. And apparently, while her husband is in town tending to this official business, she is at home managing their estate. Verse 11 tells us that her husband safely trusts her. She's earned his trust. She could manage things while he is gone from the house. She's proven to be a wise manager of household affairs, and so much so that she even considers a field and buys it. She can make investments even. She's, She's earned that much trust. And from her profits, she plants a vineyard. So there's an issue of of making money, and she's very much involved, you see, in the finances of the the household, but you see it's all geared towards their their home. She plants, therefore, a vineyard, verse 16, and this seems to indicate the management, you see, of a family farm or maybe a family vineyard. But it also seems that she presides over family business. You read in verse 14 that she's like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. Verse 18 says she perceives that her merchandise is good. Whether this is merchandise purchased or merchandise that she makes, she makes certain merchandise and sells it. And then we read in verse 24 uh, that she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Well, how, how all of this applies to 21st century American cities and the way in which we make our money nowadays and the different circumstances that people can find themselves in, how all of this applies, this is a question I, I can't answer with hard and fast dogmatism. But whatever the case, in, in that particular family, the passage makes it very plain, this we can take from this passage, that her orientation is not that of finding some kind of self-fulfillment out in some separate career. And even though her activities are not restricted to her home, She goes out and buys things and so forth. Everything she does is related to her home. Her family is not neglected while she's doing her own thing. We read in verse 15 that she rises while it's yet night, provides food for her household, a portion for her maidservants. Verse 21, she's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. Verse 27, she watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Verse 11 tells us that her husband is full of confidence in her. He trusts her without reservation. He knows that whatever she does, she's going to do it for the best of the family. He depends on her to support and help, you see, the family and enabling him to go out and do what he does and she will not be a disappointment to him. The Hebrew verb literally in verse 11 is to lean upon, where it says that the heart of her husband safely trusts her. He leans upon her, so to speak. It implies that she can be leaned upon or rested upon. She's dependable. And when he's weary, he can find refuge in her. Under her care, their home is not a place where chaos rules. He knows that when he gets back at night, things are in order. Now, according to Titus chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5, and here I'll just refer to the passage, the older women are to admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Literally, they are to be keepers at home. This is especially in the case of those that have children in the home, and it's assumed also in Proverbs chapter 31 that this is one thing that is uh, typical of the family being described there. Well, now I want to just throw the question out to you men. Um, in practical terms, what are some of the significant aspects of domestic support, ways in which your wife 
helps out with you and with the family and so forth. What are some of the ways that, uh, that this works itself out practically? I hope I'm making my, my question understandable. Yes, Dick. So when you got home, you're saying, when you were, yeah, when you were working, you're not working at all now, right? <laughs> oh, so the washing machine would already be fixed. Is that what you're saying? Okay, all right. Now, was she the mechanic, or did she get a mechanic? Okay, all right. So she did what she could. She she uh, was industrious. She figured out. How to, how to handle a problem. Um, obviously, not every wife is gifted to, to fix the car and everything else, but uh, wives are, have different talents, and they use those talents, and this was, in your case, a, a wonderful blessing. Uh, yes, Mike. Okay. Yeah, well, some, some of our wives are better mathematically than we are. And sometimes it's better for the husband to, to keep those records. Sometimes it's wise to have his wife uh, so they don't constantly make overdraft payments. She's better off... Uh, Maybe doing doing some of that, so that's a help. Tremendous help. Yes, Chris. Okay. Um, sometimes it's helpful to not just be bound to one store, but to know what what you can get. You know, you know that. You get some things that are cheaper at BJ's, some things are more expensive at BJ's, for instance. So there's different ways in which, in clipping coupons, sometimes women do that, too, to help out. Being frugal is an important way to manage the, the fines. Yes, Leo. Yeah. No surprises. No surprises. You're talking about bad surprises. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't mind it. You know. You know, I've known guys that you know come home and there's a new car sitting. Oh yeah. Yeah, that that kind of surprise. Yeah. Okay, but you'll take a a a nice special steak dinner. That she cooked. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, yeah. So there's. I mean, we have to work it out with our own wives as to, okay, now, if it's an obvious thing, the vacuum cleaner broke, just get another one vacuum cleaner. But a car, you know, big surprises. You know, there needs to be an understanding of what needs to be agreed upon. Yes. Yes, Bob. glad you brought that up about the children because our wives they spend way more time with our children than we do and uh, especially um, in, in, our, in our society more and more of us are finding that we need to homeschool and this especially tied in with that but even apart from that before they get to home other school if they want to go to Christian school for instance and so there's uh, 
tremendous amount of the upbringing. Uh, Proverbs emphasizes, of course, the law of the father, but also the law of the mother. Yeah. We also have any? Yes, Tony. So there's benevolence ministry. Proverbs 31 speaks about the response to the poor, but then also, like you mentioned, even in your extended family, there are, as our parents are getting older, as maybe we can have a sister or brother that has poor health, there's seems like there's no end of opportunities for ministry like that. Yes? Yes, yeah, yeah, ministry within the church as well as as well as extended family. Yes, amen. Michael. Okay, I'm not hearing you very well. Yes. Yeah. Don't be a Steve with your Bonnie, not like in that illustration. Get mad because in five minutes she doesn't agree. Yeah. A lot of times our bright wives, they, you know, we might feel like it's kind of foolish, you know, you know, why is she all wrapped up with fixing that, that nursery up and why is that so important if I'm going to make a million dollars, you know? But if you would have listened to her sensitivities, that there were some doubts about this whole thing, she was uneasy about it. He would have spared himself a lot of grief in that, in that case that I, I, went, I went through. The other examples you can think of. Well, you came up with uh, some excellent examples. I want to just go over a few things that I've written down, and some of this will reinforce what you've already mentioned. And the first thing I want to say is that being a keeper at home, as we read in Titus 2, it's the opposite of spending the bulk of your time running around. And this isn't something that's just a contemporary problem. In his book, A Help to Domestic Happiness, which was published first in 1833, John Angle James, he wrote this, We could easily imagine that even in paradise, when man had no apparition of guilt, no visions of crime, no spectral voice from a troubled conscience, to make him dread solitude and flee from it, that even then Adam liked not on his return from the labor of dressing the garden to find Eve absent from their bower, but wanted the smile of her countenance to light up his own and the music of her voice to be the melody of his soul. Think then how much more in his fallen estate, with guilt upon his conscience and care pressing upon his heart, as man now, on coming from the scenes of his anxious toil, need the aid of a woman's companionship to drive away the swarm of buzzing cares that light upon the heart to sting it, to smooth the brow ruffled with sadness, to tranquilize the bosom agitated with passion. O oh, woman, you know the hour when the good man of the house will return at midday. And they're perhaps talking about a farmer coming back for lunch. Or when the sun is yet bowing the laborer with the fierceness of his beams, or at evening when the heat and the burden of the day are past, do not let him, when he is weary with exertion and faint with discouragement, find upon coming home that the foot that should hasten to meet him is wandering at a distance, that the soft hand which should wipe away the sweat from his brow is knocking at the door of other houses." And of course, it's the strange woman that's always out in the streets. Proverbs chapter, Proverbs in different places speaks about that. The picture here is obviously 
sometimes a, a errand has to be done at a time when your husband's going to come home. But the picture is, is, is of a woman that thinks about, well, when is he coming home? I want to be there. He's had a hard day. This is an encouragement to him to come home to a place where he finds his wife, his beloved wife. And then this also includes all that you can do to make the home a place that is attractive and neat and cheerful and warm. Adam wouldn't have liked it if when he got back he came to a wilderness instead of a garden, or confusion and disarray instead of order or filth that would disgust him. So having the home in order and, and so on, this is something that is important in the ministry of a wife to her husband. Also, I think there needs to be support for a man in his calling. Sometimes a man's job is he takes heavy criticisms. Sometimes he works long hours at critical times. Some jobs are seasonal. He has to work sometimes maybe 15-hour days in the summer and maybe not so much later on. He builds home, for instance. Uh, and so there needs to be support for him in the stresses of his calling. There needs to be also the making of the home as a safe place. Your husband's out in the world. He's been dealing with nasty people. He's been taking criticisms all day long. He's got a boss that's really difficult to work for. And he looks forward to coming home to a place that is an oasis of refreshment that is just so different from the negativity and the strife that he's out there in the midst of in the world. And so make sure that he doesn't dread coming home to another fight because he knows he's going to have to endure a woman that's just constantly reminding him of all of his faults. Correct him, yes, sometimes when it's absolutely crucial and do so in love and not contentiousness, not as the nagging wife described in the book of Proverbs where we read in chapter 19 and verse 13, a foolish son is the ruin of his father and the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. It's a picture of water leaking in a roof and constantly drip, drip, drip. It just drives you crazy as it lands in the bucket. And so it's a picture, you see, of something that will drive a man crazy. Proverbs 31 woman is, is the opposite. She opens her mouth. She doesn't have these kinds of negativity all the time. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. And then it involves, I think, being long-suffering. It involves being forgiving and forbearing as you... Try to support your, your husband and his calling. Be patient with him, just as he needs to be patient with you. Colossians, 2, Colossians 3 says, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. So you also must do. And then also I want to emphasize being satisfied with your position, your, your possessions. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. And be content with such things as you have. In verse 16 of that same chapter, Do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So don't be a spendthrift because you're... Don't, don't be a person that just goes out and spends money all the time because of your covetous desires. But on the other hand, manage money well enough that you can... Be benevolent, as I think it was Tony that brought up in, in the comments. And one of the opposites of domestic support is lack of self-restraint in spending. The Proverbs 31 woman, she labors with her hands in order that, it, that there might be a, a positive cash flow into the household rather than constantly, as it were, as it were bankrupting the, the bank account and maxing out the credit cards, so to speak, back in the culture of those days. When I was in college, I had an economics course, and I, I found it to be one of the more difficult courses that I took when I was in college. And of course, it was all about the Federal Reserve and about money supply and all these complicated things. And so I just wanted to get something practical out of this, this course, and so I asked him for, for, could you just give us some practical finances, practical counsel about our basic finances as, as we grow up? And I remember this so clearly. He says, well, here's my counsel. I tell my wife to ask her this simple question every time she's thinking about buying something. Do I really need this thing? And, of course, you can go to extremes. A lovely bouquet 
that looks pretty. She might not say, well, I have to need it or whatever. But I think you get the point. There's a point in which there needs to be a learning of basic frugality. And don't be a tightwad in ministering to others and so on. But uh, learn this lesson of managing money. And then I think just one, we'll just add one other thing. Show an interest in the problems and concerns of your husband's work. Don't be pouring water on his dreams. Um, encourage him, strengthen him in the calling to which he has been called. Well, I want to just, um, I hope you don't mind me passing on something of a story, trying to keep you awake in the afternoon after having all that delicious cake. Um, and that's why we open it up for some questions. But I think that maybe this will hold your attention for just a few minutes before we close. And this comes from Willard Harley in a book that he wrote on meeting each other's needs. And uh, writing about this theme about domestic support, he gives this account, and this probably came out of his counseling experience. The book is not all that great for scripture exposition, but it has a lot of wisdom in it. Phil was a prosperous young bachelor. His job paid well. Because he had made a substantial down payment, he he paid low car payments, and his apartment was pleasant, nicely furnished, and well-situated. He had dated a number of women before he met Charlene, but she turned out to be different, special. They became best friends, and after about eight months of dating, he asked her to marry him. The wedding took place in October. At first, they lived in his apartment, but that was just to give time to finish accumulating enough money to put down on a house. The next summer, they found the place that they wanted, and they moved in by September. Phil relished many of the responsibilities of owning a home, caring for the yard, making repairs, installing new fixtures, and so forth. Everything went well until their first child arrived. Then Charlene decided to cut back to part-time work. Of course, this is not a good situation to start with, the fact that she doesn't work at all. But that cut their income at that time when, when the expenses escalated. Phil took a second job to compensate for the loss of Charlene's income. He found himself working 12-hour days, first as a manager of his department and then as a part-time bookkeeper for another company. At the end of five years, Phil and Charlene had three children. Phil still worked two jobs, but coming home from his second job, he found the demand greater than ever. Charlene still needed things fixed and sought help with the children. The lawn still needed mowing, and Charlene began to complain that their two-bedroom house was not big enough for their family. Life, once so pleasant for Phil, rapidly became intolerable. He tried to escape by watching television and reading the newspaper. But that didn't work well because Charlene still, didn't, still, bo still bothered him and made him get up and help around the house. Well, not long after that, Phil found Janet, a fellow worker he could talk with and relax with. And within a year, he and Janet became involved in an affair. Phil would stop by at her place at about midnight after he got off his second job. Janet's kids will be in bed. The delicious steak dinner was waiting for him, along with the royal treatment. And after dinner, they enjoyed some intimacy. They went to sleep, and Janet geared everything to Phil's relaxation and pleasure. Well, this pattern had persisted for months, with Phil never going back home. His wife, both furious and desperate, attempted to win him back by going to his office once in a while in the middle of the day and to try to win his heart. But she didn't make much progress because she felt too furious to give Phil the warmth and affection that he got from Janet. But when Phil and I talked, I told him, if you were single, you would never look at Janet. She's overweight, homely, she has six kids, she's not at all your type. But I love her, she, he said. I, I've never loved a woman so much in my whole life. Well, eventually Charlene couldn't take it anymore. And as soon as she left Phil, his affair with Janet fell apart. I knew it would, because Janet had provided a service in competition with Charlene. And when that competition with Charlene no longer existed, much of Janet's motivation went also. The midnight steak dinner ceased, and Janet started making demands on Phil and giving him a taste of what being around six kids has felt like. So Phil backed out. He stopped seeing Janet, and after months of missing his family, he went back to Charlene willing to work together toward a goal of reuniting, and their relationship improved tremendously once she could understand his need for what I call domestic support. 
Well, he goes on to, to describe how he gave counsel to the repair of their marriage. And, of course, it involved, if he gave biblical counsel, some serious repentance. But the need of a husband for domestic support from a wife is something that's often fantasized by the man. He fantasizes about how when he comes home, she's going to greet him lovingly and pleasantly at the door, about the well-behaved children that are going to be there. They're so glad to see their dad come home. The house is all in order. And this fantasy continues as the wife urges him to sit down and relax before taking a tasty dinner. Aroma's wafting into his nose. And the conversation is perfectly peaceful and there's nothing contentious about it. The family goes out together early on in the evening for a stroll. He gets back to the, put the children in bed. There's no hassle, there's no fuss. And then he and his wife, and they, they talk, they relax together, they watch maybe a little television together, they go to bed, and all of this at a reasonable hour. Well, a lot of wives, they think, well, that is really quite a, quite a, quite a fantasy. But that's the way men think. And they think it's just going to happen, and it is something that there is... I think after a hard day's work, a craving for that kind of support. And whether some of that fantasy is realistic or not, we can't get into all the details. I trust you get the idea, women, that this is a tremendously serious aspect of your calling, a tremendous need that has been put upon you by God in terms of ministering to the needs of your husband in love as God has given you opportunity and as God has given you ability. Well, I wanted to go into some practical pointers to conclude. I would just say that it would be helpful to just spend some time asking your husband specifically, what are your needs? Because sometimes it varies from one man to another. What's important to one man may not be so important to another. And try to avoid those things that are just the opposite, that just tear down, that just destroy those things that are the opposite of giving your husband the kind of domestic support that we have been discussing. Our time is up, so I can't go into details, but I think you can think it through and try to avoid those things that tear down rather than build up your marriage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us in your word that which is so practical, that which is so uh, calculated to bring happiness to us as well as bring righteousness and that which pleases you and we pray O oh father that as we are bombarded with the teaching in our universities the example that is set before us in television programs and in advertisements that all would lead us into such a contrary direction we pray that you would help us to be governed by your word and by these principles that we are studying together from that word and we pray that we would be delivered from the thinking of the world that is all around us. Give us help, we do pray, to please you, to love one another as husbands and wives, to grow in love, to grow in happiness as a result of our self-denying love to one another. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.